All right, turn with me over to Revelation chapter 10. And um, it's not a very long chapter. We'll get through all of it here tonight. And um, the title is The Word of God, Bittersweet. I've alluded to this passage many times as we've been making our way through the book of Revelation. And so now we actually come to the chapter where it talks about this. As we come to this, we have so far seen um, John and the elders, well, John began to weep because there was no one was found to open the seal that was in the hand of the one who sat upon the throne, and that's the, the Lord himself. And yet, Jesus came, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, and he took that scroll out of his hand, for he was worthy, and he opened the scroll. And it's the redemption of this world back to God. And he is the only one that is worthy. And as those seven seals are opened, those seven seals then turned into the seven trumpets. And those seven trumpets, we will see, turned into those seven bowl judgments. Now, the last of the seven trumpets are called the three woes, if you remember that, which is a way of saying these are the worst. So the seventh trumpet, like the seventh seal, opens into a new set of judgments. So the seventh seal opens into the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet opens into um, the seven bowls of judgment. And the seventh trumpet is also known as the third woe, which is a way of saying, watch out. It's about as bad as it gets. And so this last series of judgments that we'll read of are um, the most intense of the judgments, which, um, you know, I know that this is kind of the common thing said, but as you read it, it's just, I don't know how it gets worse than what we've already read. I mean, people are dying. People are experiencing judgment of God. It, that, that's as bad as it gets. But that is kind of the, the flow so far. Now, as we move in here, chapter 10, verse 1 through chapter 11, um, we come into an, an interlude um, in the story. So we're not going to read about any more judgments. We're going to read about what's to come. Um, so there's a bit of, of a break. There's not a whole lot that's advancing chronologically um, upon planet Earth. But we do find ourselves here at the middle of the tribulation. So let's begin reading. We'll start at verse 1. It says, I saw still another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and the left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. So we have this description of a mighty angel, and nobody is uh, in agreement with who it is. Um, some will say, and I can understand completely, that this is Jesus, and he's got the rainbow on his head, face like um, the sun, feet like pillars of fire, a foot on the sea, a foot on the land. This sounds like the Lord, and it very well may, may be. Um, but what we're going to see as we move through is that this angel um, is, is going to swear by heaven and take an oath by heaven, which just, um, in verse 6 it says, um, well, verses 5 and 6, the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, and he goes on. So 
That certainly is a statement that Jesus could make, but that sounds like he's not including himself in that. And it's for that one little point that um, causes me to, to say, I, I don't think that this is Jesus, but honestly, to the message that is going to come from this uh, mighty angel, um, it has no bearing on the, on the outcome of what he's going to say. So his identity is left a bit of a mystery, but Jesus is never called an angel in the New Testament. So, um, but angel means messenger. So we know that Jesus was a faithful messenger of the Father when he came to earth. So, you know, you, you have different opinions um, on, on exactly who he is. Probably, my opinion, if you had to take a, a guess, if it's not Jesus and it is an angel, then very well may be Michael. Uh, maybe read Daniel 12, verses 1 and verses 6 and 7. Daniel 12, 1, verses 6 and 7. But it's a mighty angel, and he's coming with a, a solemn announcement. And verse 4 says, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. So this was not just an ordinary um, thunderstorm, right? There's something different about it. And the thunders that are being heard are speaking in, a, in an intelligent communication that John, who has been writing everything down that he has, is hearing and receiving, is about to write down what these seven thunders spoke and communicated. But the Lord says, no, no, no. Don't do that. I don't, I'm not going to reveal this to you. Seal up these things which... The seventh thunders uttered. Now listen, I have, um, I have heard, I have not actually, I don't have a commentary that actually tries to tell you what those seven thunders are. I've heard that there are commentaries out there about the seven thunders and, you, and the author has an insight that he knows what they are. <laughs> now, listen, I don't know if that's just, uh, I don't I've never actually read it, but it wouldn't surprise me that somebody would say, well, I know um, this wasn't revealed, but I know what it is. And, um, and the answer is, don't waste your time. Don't bother with it. The Lord didn't want it to be known, um, and so it was not known. Now, Paul heard things that he could not share. Remember that? When he was um, there in Lystra, was stoned, left for dead, and he had, was caught up to the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, 4. He said, I could tell you things, but it, I can't, sorry. Daniel was told to seal up his vision um, in chapter 8 and in chapter 12 um, and was not allowed to share that. So there are, there are times in which God says, I'm not going to give you all of this information or this information is not for this time. And that's what happened. But it sure makes you wonder, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, I... I Based on the context, if, it, if the seven thunders had anything to do with the context, then we're talking about judgment. You have three bows, you have seven you know, bowls, you have seven trumpets, you have seven seals, but we really don't know what it is. But yeah, if you're going to take a guess contextually, just say, likely has to do with some kind of judgment that the Lord's not. Now, why not tell us? We don't know, but it does kind of add a little bit of a, a solemn feel to it. It's kind of like, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You know what? No, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. Okay, and it kind of just like, well, what is it that is so bad that you're not going to tell me? And it, and it has that kind of feel to it as we read about these, 
you know, seven bulls, seven trumpets, seven seals, three woes, and seven thunders. No, I'm not going to tell you. And it makes you just pause and understand that God is sovereign and he does whatever he wants. It also tells us there are things which I think we know, all right, we all know this just intuitively. We know this logically. There are plenty of things that God knows that he's going to do that we don't know. Which leads me to maybe this point. There are plenty of things that are going on in our life that you don't understand that God understands. And maybe they're sealed up in your life. Job kind of had a sealed up experience, didn't he? Um, I don't, you know, Job didn't have the benefit of reading the book about him. <laughs> it was revealed by the Spirit later. I, so we don't always know what the Lord is doing. Um, you know, obviously this is t- talking about something that's going on in the last days, but just in our own life, there are things that can be going on. It's like, Lord, why? And he's like, I just, I'm not going to tell you right now. And it doesn't have that judgment uh, overtone to it. It's just he's not sharing. And maybe he will inform you later. And maybe he won't. But don't forsake who you know for what you don't know. Write that down. That's really good, and I didn't come up with it. But that is really good. Don't forsake who you know for what you don't know. Who do you know? Who is it? It's one that gave his life for you, who hung on the cross, who was willing to come and become, uh, come to earth and be a man, that he might have a body, that that body might be nailed to the cross so that your sins and my sins can be forgiven. He's, a one that, he's one that has promised eternity with him. He's one that has said that we will sit and we will rule upon thrones with him like he sat upon his father's throne. You know who he is. We know so much about what is going to come in our life. There are things that you don't understand and I don't understand. And, and when we don't understand the what and the why, just cling to the who. And that will get you through. That will get you through the difficulties. So, yeah, he, he seals it up. Maybe you feel like that um, in your life. There are some things that are sealed up that you just don't know. Well, okay, that's okay. You don't have to know everything. And if you knew everything, you might just run. <laughs> you might just run if you knew everything. So let the Lord show you and reveal to you according to his sovereign pleasure and time. In verse 5, we are, kind of already read these, but let's go back. Verses 5 through 7. It says, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. So we have this image of this angel standing, just speaking of the uh, the, the authority and the power over the planet Earth. And whatever he is coming to announce, it is going to affect everything. But in the midst of this, this angel begins to worship the Lord. And it, he worships the Lord as, as who? As creator. And the creator of how many things? All things. And how many times does he have to tell us this? He tells us three times. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't know if there's a connection there, but it seems like a good one, right? And that that God is the creator over all things, and he is worshiping and saying, you are the one, I've got my foot on the land, and I have my foot on the sea, but they're yours. You've made them, and you've made everything that is in them. 
Old Testament to New Testament. First book of the Bible, last book of the Bible. God is a creator of this place where we live. That's the testimony, the clear testimony of Scripture in narrative. It's a clear testimony of Scripture um, in poetry. It's a clear message of Scripture in prophecy. It doesn't matter which genre you go to. God is called creator. And sometimes people like to make a big deal. Well, it talks about him as creator in this you know, Hebrew poetry. And so therefore, it can't possibly be real or be meaningful. And, and that is... That is a wrong line of thinking for so many reasons. God has revealed himself as creator. And the epistles. I mean, every, every type of literature we have in the Bible all declares God as creator. But Satan has done a masterful job of deluding man into believing that there is no um, creator. That where we live and everything that we experience and even our very existence is something that is left up to the product of chance and not the result of intelligent design from a creator God. And yet, with all the study and all the research that um, these men and women do, they are at the end of the day, they are left with one glaring problem. They say that this has all begun by chance and there's a big explosion and then after, you know... Uh, great eons, it all kind of worked out and fell together. We look at the world around us and we see that this is a result of that random event that happened out in outer space and, and we have what we call this planet and animals and mankind and the, the atmosphere and all of these things were the result of an accident. And so many believe that and they have all kinds of you know, supposed evidence that they want to point to to show you that this is the case. But you know, the one thing that they can't answer is where did that information come from that caused the explosion in the first place? When the explosion happened, where, who put the elements out there so that an explosion could happen? And then when the, the, the information came together and formed that first cell, where did that information come from? Whenever you see information... A communication, you know of intelligent design. Let's talk about something incredibly simple. You're walking on the beach and you see a heart in the sand of the beach. What is your thought? What does that mean? You can write a big long story about just that simple little shape in the sand. You know that that is there by somebody. That's information. That's some data that was put down. And you can begin to, to think about you know, what happened and why that was placed there. But, but it tells you that if I have information, there's an informer. And that the Lord, that you, you could even look, you know, in a cave. And you could have just a, this crude stick figure of something that looks like a, you know, a horse. And, and the, you know, um, archaeologists will go nuts with this information and it'll be a great find and it'll be in a book and they're going to write all about this little stick figure this little bit of information because we know that if we have a stick figure of a horse or a buffalo or whatever it might be that there were people that lived here and they put that there so that and then they go on with who they were and all the rest we have any of that the smallest bit of of uh uh you know, communication, we understand information that an informer was there. 
I want you to think about that. It's like, well, you know, the explosion happened. It was this very, very simple, you know, crude information. Well, one of the, if you look at the DNA of the human being, it is 3.5 billion letters long. This is what the Genome Project has come up with. 3.5 billion letters. That's not a heart on the beach. That's not a stick figure in a cave. That is an incredible amount of information. Where did that information come from? Well, what did we read here? Who created heaven and all the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. There's a creator who had this information and he put it together. So even the most basic elements of the human being. Let's get back to the, you know, get, go all the way back to the beginning. And as you go back further, then the information is going to be so simplistic. But that's not what's happened. The more they go back, the more they realize how complicated all of this information is. It's not some crude kind of information. So God is a creator. And um, this is what this angel understands. It's what we should understand. And why is that important? When I understand that there's a creator, it, it can then lead me to a lot of conclusions, is that he's a good person. This is what Romans tells us. Is look at the earth we live on. Look at the beauty of it. Look at the wonder of it. And the things, there's plenty of stuff that's wrong, but, but there's good. And we can see it. And, and so I, I realize I, I want to worship that one who has made these things. And there's this understanding that I must be accountable to him. Um, around the same time in which Darwin was living, there was a guy by the name of Aldous Huxley. And he says, I've chosen to adopt my meaning, uh, my philosophy of meaninglessness because it allows me to live however I want to morally. At least he's honest. And um, he was a, one of the premier evolutionists. And that's the thing. People don't want to be accountable to God. Now, I don't, and I am not saying that everybody who's an evolutionist has been so direct in their statements as Aldous Huxley was. But it is something that I believe is just there. When Jesus came, they weren't evolutionists, but they didn't want the light lest their deeds should be exposed. So however it manifests itself, man does not like the idea of being accountable to a creator for the way in which he lives his life. Well, evolutionists or not, one day the Lord is coming to this earth and he is going to deal with that which is in the sea and he's going to deal with that which is upon the land, signified by this angel who has a foot in both of these places. At the end of this section, verse 6, it says that there should be delay no longer. Nobody likes delay. I don't like the delay of a construction project. I don't like the delay at airports. You know, delay is, I mean, you, you, sometimes you'll look and say, well, actually, the delay is good. And, and, and we can look and say that here, too. But, you know, sometimes delays just, they're usually not the thing you enjoy. And, and I think we often feel like that in this present time. There's delay. And in the midst of the delay, things happen as we traverse through this life. There are trials and hardships that just can take us to the mat. And we're just like wiped out by it. And the thing that I think is so important for us to remember is that 
Um, there'll come a time when there's no more delay. There'll be no more waiting. Now, this delay specifically is talking about the judgment of God during the Great Tribulation. But there is a sense of application into all of our lives where when we go to be with him, the delay will be over. When he comes back for the church, the delay is going to be over. And we won't be waiting any longer. And we will see the fullness of all that the Lord has. And this is why it's so important for us to keep our hope right in front of our face. That Jesus is coming back. That he's going to rule and reign upon this earth. He's going to deal with evil. And this current system is going to be gone. And then for the rest of eternity, we'll be living in a perfect environment with the Creator, with our Savior, with our Redeemer. And it's going to be perfect for all of eternity. There's going to come a time when the, the delay is all over. And so just hang on and keep pressing on. Because what is in front of us is forever. And what we're enduring now is just for a moment. Our life is like a vapor, Scripture says. It's like a, field in the uh, a, field, a flower in the field that's there for one moment and is gone the next. Whenever I, I, I read that passage or think about it, I always think about where, I, when I was a little boy, we lived in the desert in Palm Springs. Um, and, you know, come springtime, these beautiful purple flowers will just, it's mainly homes and golf courses now, so you probably don't see a whole lot of it. But back then, the, these, the, the desert sand would just turn purple almost overnight with all of these flowers. And they'd be there for just a little while, and then they'd be gone. And, um, and that's what our life is like. We're just here. Boom, boom, gone. But then it's all of eternity. And so we live in the delay right now because we know what's coming. Um, uh, and we know that there's good. We know there's going to be righteousness. We live in the delay right now. But there'll come a time and when the Lord says the, the delay is over. Come to me now or I'm coming for you now. And so hang in there and don't draw back. Verse 7 says, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery, of God would, uh, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. So the seventh trumpet, right, um, when it sounds, is going to conclude uh, the, the revealed plan that God has given. Everything will be wrapped up. It will all um, coming to an end. So when the seventh trumpet blasts, it's believed, of course, as I said, that will then turn into the seven bold judgments and the second coming of Christ. So that's at this point in the book of Revelation, that's like 42 months away, three and a half years, um, 1,260 days, all ways in which it's, uh, it's referenced as a time period. So that's kind of where we are with the, the blasting of the the seventh trumpet. But it's all going to be finished. You know, God has revealed much to us about his plans, hasn't he? I mean, we, we have so much information. There's a plenty we don't know. There's, there's things that are sealed up. There are, you know, there are thunders that we don't know about. There's other things that um, we don't have information on. But we know a lot. The Lord has revealed so much to us. I encourage you just to sit back and, and just contemplate what, what you know from Scripture that God has revealed is going to happen. And he's revealed that to his servants. He's revealed that to um, those that are, he calls his friends. 
God has not left us in the darkness about the end of days. Nor has he given us a detailed outline of what's going to happen at every second and every minute. But I tell you what, when you get into the book of Revelation, I mean, you have a really good idea of what's going to happen in the last seven years. And we know what's going to happen after that. So, I mean, we have been given so much information. And um, it's, it's prophecy. And we should study these things. We should look to them. Look at verse 8, verses 8 through 11. He gets, John gets instruction to eat the little book, the little scroll that is in the hand of this mighty angel. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter, and he said to me, you must prophesy again. And, and so this, this prophecy that he, that he wants him to go and to, to speak of, that he wants him to, to declare. He says, get out there. You've spoken once. I want you to speak again. And he, he goes on to tell him. I mean, you're gonna, I mean, keep in mind, John's an old man at this point, nearing 100 years old. And he says, your, your run is not over. you got to go prophesy again. You're going to talk to uh, nations. And you're going to talk to people of different languages. You're going to talk to kings. I wonder what John thought. It's like, really? He's like, I'm not done with you, John. And um, so he's going to do that. But, but I want you to notice something. The book of Revelation is a prophecy. Do you see that at the end, there in verse 11? And he said to me, you must prophesy again. He has been prophesying, and he is going to continue to prophesy. This is, you know, uh, there's a lot that is made of um, apocalyptic type literature that ran from the 2nd century B.C. to the 2nd century A.D. And a lot of this stuff is just craziness. And it's full of imagery and symbols. And um, you usually never knew who wrote it. Um, and it was a very, you always kind of had an end of days type of uh, feel to it. And certainly this is an end of days feel, and there's a lot of symbols and imagery. But most of this symbol, symbolism and imagery comes right out of the Old Testament. And so I just personally, I get it. Um, I have a problem calling this apocalyptic because what is so often then associated, it's, it's technically right to call it that, but what often then goes with that is, and this is just craziness that you really can't understand. But you're reading it. We're going through it. It's able, we're able to discern a flow and a logic and instruction and exhortation. And we know who wrote it, which is all, all of those elements, by the way, are different than apocalyptic. I, I personally just like to refer to this as it's prophetic. This is prophetic. The Lord is talking. This is similar to the writings of Ezekiel. This is similar to the writing of um, Joel. This is similar to the writing of Daniel, of course. So, um, yeah, if you, if you come across that, I just not everyone who uses that term goes in the direction that I just warned you of, but do understand 
that a lot of times it's like, well, that's just apocalyptic. It's, it's a way of dismissing the message of the book of Revelation. But you see right there in verse 11, it's prophetic. God is declaring what's going to happen in the end and before it takes place. So what is this little scroll that is in his hands? Well, maybe it's um, that seven-sealed scroll that's being opened, and that's what we're talking about. Um, we don't know for certain, but he is told to eat it. We know that it's full of, of you know, lamentations. We know this is something that's going to be full of judgments, just like what we've been reading so far. It's, it's something that talks about God's wrath upon the earth. And so John is getting a preview into the last moments of man's existence, the last three and a half years of man's existence. Um, and, and that is the bitter part of the book, isn't it? As you read through the book of Revelation, um, and, and much of prophecy, there are bitter elements that are associated with the message that the Lord gives us. Those that want to read a book that is, only says sweet little things, then don't open the Bible. Because the Bible is truthful. The Bible is honest about the sweet promises that we're going to have, but it's also honest about the judgment. And where would we be if it, the, the Scriptures weren't honest with us? Everybody wants a warning. Everybody wants a warning before the judgment comes. And if you don't get it, it's like, well, why didn't you tell me if you would have told me? And we appeal. I would have loved to have had a warning, you know, a prophecy of what was going to happen if I didn't. So it's not that God is in heaven rubbing his hands together and saying, and then I'm going to fry him. That's not the heart of the Lord. But he does warn us about the fire of hell. And he does warn us about the judgment that is to come which any parent who's ever parented their children, you have prophesied <laughs> to your kids. You have told them about what's going to happen in the future if they don't stop doing what they're doing right now. And you've proven yourself to be a true prophet or prophetess. And you fulfilled that word. And, and so we, we do this. This is not against love. That's what I'm trying to say. This is not against kindness. This goes in line with it. But when he eats this book, it is both bitter and sweet. And there are sweet promises of salvation. There are promises of, of being in the presence of the Lord. I've alluded to them already. There's promises of, of sitting upon the throne with Jesus Christ as he sits upon the throne with his Father. Wow. I mean, this is some amazing stuff. And, and there is a sweetness um, of the Lord being with us through our trials and through our hardships and that he'll reveal himself. But there is that bitter side of the word of the Lord too that we've been reading about. I mean, you know, wow. The end of chapter 8, chapter 9, locusts out of the Buso and the four uh, angels at the river Euphrates that loose this terrible army that goes around and killing people. I mean, almost a billion people. I mean, there is some bitterness. And so... John is the prophet. John is told to eat this, digest this. If I could use these words, and I mean it in a very limited sense, make it your own. Not like go make it your own and add to it, but understand this message and let it become a part of you. 
the sweetness and the bitterness, so that as a prophet, that when you speak, you can rightly declare that message. And listen, all of us understand here tonight the bitterness and the sweetness of this message. Because you've all been in conversations, or at the very least, you've contemplated conversations with people you know and you love. And if they don't receive the gospel, the sweetness of Jesus Christ, then I must warn them of the consequences. And at that point, the message becomes bitter, doesn't it? The mercy and the kindness and the love and the grace, all of that is sweet. But there's a place where you have to warn And as soon as you contemplate the warning, you feel the bitterness in your gut. You feel it. It's like, oh, no, Christmas is going to be bad if I bring this up. You know, nobody's going to want to eat after we start talking about Jesus and they go the way they usually do. And there's a a bitterness that's associated with that. Um, And we see how people have rejected um, John's message. He's on the island of Patmos in exile. Um, we see what happens when we deliver a message. And sometimes the sweetness of the message is all people need to hear and they receive it and it is sweet fellowship. But there's other times when they reject that and they hear the consequences of rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ and the bitterness of judgment that's associated with that. Now that relationship becomes bitter with that person. But John says, is told, he's commanded, eat it. Eat the whole thing. And I want you to declare both the the, the sweet aspects of this message, but you also need to declare to the kings and to those of other tongues and to the nations this message of judgment that is coming. Job 23.12 says, Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. So there's this, this... idea of eating the word of God is something that's established in all the way back into the book of Job. Um, Jeremiah 15, 16, the wor- thy words were found and I did eat them and your word was unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. So eating the word of God, not, not a new concept at all. Um, you might want to cross-reference Ezekiel chapter 2. Um, beginning at verse 10. And you can take it down to chapter 3, verse 3. But Ezekiel is told to eat a sweet squirrel. So, well, you know, something that's, that's found in Scripture. It's not new. It's, it's something. But the idea is assimilate the message so you're able to declare it. And that is what he is being told to do. So for us, I mean, there's some application. I'm a couple of application points. But... We all need to be eating the Word of God. Now, now listen, he specifically has given a portion of the Word of God that we're going to be reading in the coming weeks. And, um, and, and that's that he was told to get that. But all of us are told to eat the Word of God, right? We're all commanded to make it our own. 2 Timothy 2.15, reading from the New Living Translation, says, Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth, which I will add, because you have eaten it. You've assimilated it. You've worked over it. You've chewed it. You've eaten the tough parts. You've enjoyed the sweet parts. But you've made it a part of who you are. And now you can rightly divide it. You can, that is, you can correctly explain 
the word of the Lord. We are told to do this throughout Scripture, is to come to the word of God, to desire the pure milk of the word as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. And so, the, you know, it's, the word of God is talked as, as being sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And here we read that it's also bitter. But we need to be people of the word. And not just when you come to church. Not just when you come on a Wednesday or Sunday or home fellowship or whatever, you know, women's group, men's group. All of those are wonderful and they have the focus of the word of God. But this needs to become a regular part of your life. But I do understand that for a lot of people, it's just really difficult. And it's like I, you haven't developed that pattern and that habit in your life. And so you got a handout when you came in. If you didn't get a handout when you came in, just a single sheet. If you have it, pull it out. If you didn't get one, raise your hand and don't hand them out. Everybody got one? Okay, right up here in the front. Anybody else? They'll be up there in just a minute. Keep your hand up until they get, the, get to you. So just eight quick points. I think we have eight quick points here. Number one, as you think about the Word of God, make it a daily part of your life, just like you like to eat food every day. Well, you need to eat spiritual food every day. So get ready. Um, and I would encourage you to get a journal and get something to write your thoughts down. Have an open heart. Then pray. I mean, it's okay, you got the word. That's great. Now pray and ask the Lord to reveal himself to you in the pages of the Bible. That's what we're, we're wanting to have a revelation of the Lord as we get into Scripture. So, well, I, I, you know, why a journal? Because... Come with the idea that God is going to show you something that is worth remembering for more than the end of the day. That he's going to say something, he's going to speak something to you that you should remember. And that you want to write it down. I think it also just kind of speaks to the fact of, I think you're going to say something to me. It's it's almost like a statement of faith. Lord, here I am, I've got your word, now I'm prepared to write things down. Now, for some of you, you might be like, God, that's just, I'm terrible at that. Okay, well, you're not getting graded. It's yours. Just write it down. I would say to the believer who loves the word and knows the value of the word and gets very little out of the word, this may be the one thing that just unlocks so many things for you. Just get the pencil moving. Get the pen moving. And, and watch what the Lord begins to do. And say, well, I don't even know where I begin. Okay. Let's continue on. What are you going to write down? Well, ask this question. What does this verse or this thought, this passage, what does it mean? And here's what you do. Restate it in your own words. It's a very simple thing to do. But if you can restate it in your own words, it's, it's going to help you to chew that on the word. You're chewing. You're digesting the word of God. Um, define the words you don't know. Like, well, where do I go for that? Okay, well, if you, if you have the freedom to be um, online, go to blueletterbible.org. Um, great place to go. All kinds of tools and resources. Everything you'll need is right there to define. Identify the names of people you don't know. Same thing. There's dictionaries that you can go to, and you can look them up. It's all free. So this is what you can Restate it in your own words, which means you're probably going to have to define some words you don't understand. And you're going to identify the names of people you don't know. One way to maybe to think about this is, imagine that God 
called you tomorrow to go over to Turkey and to teach the Word of God or go to Manila in the Philippines and teach the Word of God. How are you gonna, what are you going to say about that passage? I have no idea. Okay, pray. Write it down. Begin to restate it in your own, own words. Number three, what does a passage say about God? So after you've restated it, dig a little deeper. What does it say about his actions or how he interacts with men and nations? Do you see the mercy of God? Do you see the compassion of God? The patience of God? The love of God? The long-suffering? Do you see the chastening of the Lord? Are there any characteristics that are spoken of in, um, as a writer is um, speaking of the Lord? Number four, what does this passage say about me? Like, is there any sin I should avoid? Is there a promise I need to hold on to? Is there a command I need to live out? These are just, you're just trying to think upon the word of God. Next, what does this passage say about others? So if you're thinking about, like, for example, David, is there any mistakes that David made? Are there any victories that were secured? Are there attitudes they had that are good or bad that maybe would be an example for you to follow? Positively or negatively. So you're writing all this down. So now, see, now suddenly there's a whole lot of stuff to write. You've gone, some of you have gone from the point of thinking, I have nothing to write down. I think that's too much to write down. Okay, can't make you happy. Find the middle ground there. Just engage with the Word of God. But then we want to get real practical. So point F. Am I living in agreement with the truths discovered about God, others, and myself? So you've learned that God is long-suffering. So you have learned that um, people prayed. You have learned that you are to forgive. Are you living in accordance with that? And, and, and be uh, specific. Why, if, it's, if you're not, why not? Why aren't you doing that? And this is where that you get to really see the Holy Spirit probe into the depths of your heart. Why are you not walking in obedience to the Word of God? Why are you not following those godly examples? And again, you know, being specific, what changes do you need to make in your actions or thinking? That's called repentance. What do you need to change so that you are living in agreement? And after you've done this, close with prayer. You opened with prayer, now close with prayer. Lord, help me to live this out. Or, or it might sound like this, Lord, thank you. I'm actually... I feel like I'm walking like that person in Scripture is walking. I feel like I'm walking in the knowledge of your holiness. Lord, thank you for that work that you're doing. You can thank the Lord. It's not always negative. I mean, God's at work in our life. And then, as you close in prayer, and then take that journal with you and review it through the day when you're on break or you're at lunch or that person doesn't show up on time for the meeting. That's a great way to redeem time, by the way. That's for that late friend of yours. Just, just have it there. Open it up. And, you know, maybe you didn't get through all the questions, and you can keep adding to it. And, and you know, what you're going to find is that you are rightly dividing the word of truth. And if you have questions, then, hey, when you come to church, talk to one another. Ask. You say, I was reading this passage, and I just didn't get it. And now you guys can talk. And maybe that person won't get it either. And now both of you are going to be chewing, you know, on that piece 
of the Word of God together. And nourishment is going to come to you. And there's going to be things that are sweet. And then there's going to be those things that maybe really challenge you. And again, it's kind of like a bitter word of exhortation about the way that you've been living. This is so important for us to do this. John is told to go and eat the book. This little book is a portion of the Bible. But we need to eat the whole thing. We need to eat the whole counsel of God's word. And so I encourage you to to engage in this way. And it's going to be sweet and it's going to be bitter. And so John is then commanded, now prophesy. Speak forth that which you ate. And so we speak to one another. We exhort each other. We go and we proclaim the gospel to those that are around. And yeah, it's, it's sweet to those that are being saved and to those that are perishing. It's a bitter message. But we need to be speaking to each other from the word of God. We need to be speaking to the lost, that gospel message. So John um, has this interesting encounter with this mighty angel that surprisingly has a lot of application to our own lives. And so let's go ahead and pray. And as we do, let's ask the Lord to stir up our hearts for his word, to love it, to eat it, to drink it in, to assimilate it, that we might walk it out, that we might preach it out. Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us, your servants, the things that will take place in the days to come. And Lord, we we understand why for John, when he ate it, it was sweet. And it is sweet to think about your return and being in your presence and ruling and reigning with you and sin being dealt with and sickness and famine and death and disease being no more. Lord, these are sweet things to consider. But Lord, it's also bitter to consider the judgment that's coming upon the world. And I'm sure there are Every one of us in here knows people that have not received the gospel. And we know, Lord, a bitter day is coming and it affects us. But may we learn to be faithful prophets, eating your word, digesting your word, and proclaiming your word and living it out. Lord, I pray that you would stir up within us a deep hunger We say so often, I'm starving. Lord, may we learn, may you generate within us a hunger and a thirst for your word.